2, Paul is telling Titus, giving him instructions for his work as an evangelist on the island of Crete, the place where Paul left him to deal with things in the churches there on that island. And so he's giving him instructions for really his work as an evangelist. And part of that, a lot of his work, is teaching. And he teaches different things to different people because they need different things. So he's uh, told in 2.2 what to teach the older men, in 2.3 what to teach the older women, in 2.6 what to teach the young men, and now in verse 9, what to teach these slaves. So would somebody read 9 and 10? Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. All right, so what are the, what are the uh, orders for the slaves? And yeah, do everything their masters tell them. What do you think about that? Not always too good. That would be kind of a bummer, wouldn't it? What about freedom and your rights? That's an American thing. Yeah. Like the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, what about the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and all that? Where's that in the Bible? I don't think it's there. Yeah, so um, slaves didn't exactly have rights, and they were God wanted them to be obedient in the economic and political system that they were in. You might think that's not very fair, but that's the that's the system. And this is not about being fair. This is about uh, obeying the authorities that are over you. Maybe they're not competent, maybe they're not nice, maybe they're not a lot of things, but the servants are told to obey them, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. That's tough. You have to not only obey them, you can't even argue back. Which would be disrespectful to someone that was over you. So, these are pretty challenging things. What else were they not supposed to do? You may not even know what that word means. Pilfer. Pilfer. You ever pilfered? Stealing? Stealing, yeah. Uh, would you would you see a reason that a slave might be especially tempted to steal something? They might have easy access to it. Right. They would uh, probably know where it was and know how to get it and know when nobody's looking and, you know, they've got some uh, good opportunities. Why else might a slave... Steal something. What would he? What might motivate him to steal it, or might make him feel like it was okay? Yeah, it's not too much anyway. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like, well, his master's not paying him anything, and he owes it to him. He deserves it. So it's like, well, really, I deserve this anyhow. Can you imagine rationalizing like that and thinking that really you're just getting what you're supposed to have because he hadn't been paid or anything like that? And so I think it would be easy to justify that. But he says, no, don't do that. But showing all good faith is so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now, the thing that's interesting is the gospel is adorned by a Christian's behavior. What does it mean to adorn? Yes. So it's made beautiful. 
is decorated by a Christian's good behavior. A slave, a Christian slave's good behavior makes the gospel look nice. Isn't it interesting that we can make the teaching of Christ more attractive by as his servants, as his disciples, doing what we're supposed to do? You know, you don't ever think about that, but I mean, you think about that in other respects. Um, when, what if you've got really bratty kids, and when they're out away from home, they really do bad stuff? What do people immediately think? Parents. parents don't know what they're doing and raising them. Isn't that what people think? That may or may not be true, but that's what people think. What Your behavior as a kid reflects on your parents. Well, we're children of God. Our, if our behavior, even as a slave, reflects on God. So that's something to really give some uh, thought to. And uh, amazing that slaves can actually make the gospel more beautiful. Comments or questions on that? All right, how about 11 to 15? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great, and great, God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify us for himself and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority let no one disregard you all right very interesting god's grace has appeared that's not a big surprise right we know the grace of god appeared with jesus what did the grace of god do Brought salvation. All right, brought salvation to all men. You know, we know that, right? God's grace saves. Does it save everybody, though? It can, but it it's up to them. Yeah. If I bring you, uh, you know, I don't know, what, what do you like to eat? Filet mignon? Anybody like filet mignon? I have no idea what that is. Okay. How about ice cream? <laughs> if I bring you ice cream, I could bring it to you. Does that mean you've eaten it? Anybody here not like ice cream? Okay. So you probably eat it. But, you know, you could bring something to somebody, even something good, and they not receive it. So they don't, it's brought, but they don't get it. That's the idea. He brought salvation to all men. But now not everybody has received it. But it's, it's available, and he's brought it to them. By his grace. But that's not the only thing that God's grace does. What else does God's grace do besides bringing salvation? It instructs us. Yeah, it teaches us. That's kind of an interesting way to think about it. Like grace is a professor to guide us in this new life. It teaches us to do things. God's grace is not just saving us. But it's also telling us how to live a transformed life. Teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. I mean, that's how we're supposed to live. That's what God's grace teaches us. So God's grace saves us and teaches us how to live a transformed life. And in all that, 
we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ Jesus. There are several things there. First of all, are we, uh, are we looking for the blessed hope? I mean, if you're looking for something, what are you doing? You're hoping for it? You are... What would our word be for looking for something? Searching. Searching. Watching for it. Seeking. Seeking it. You know, if, uh, if, if you don't put any effort into it, are you looking for it? You know, you gotta, are we really looking for him to come back? Are we thinking about it? Are we focused on it? But look at this. Look at the, the comparison between verse 11 and verse 13. What's, what's the word that's essentially repeated <coughs> in those two uh, verses? Appeared. appeared. Now, in the past tense, in verse 11, what appeared? God's grace appeared. When did God's grace really appear most evidently? Yeah, Jesus, death, and resurrection. Jesus brought God's grace. God's grace appeared with Jesus. All right, what's what? What are we looking at in verse thirteen? Glory of our great God and Savior. So when's that going to happen? Is that what He brought when He came the first time? No. This is this is what He's going to give the second time He comes. It won't be a manifestation of grace the second time. It'll be an appearing of His glory. Now, you can read the rest of verse 13 two ways. How do you read it? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ Jesus. Or do you read it, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Do you see the two ways of reading it? We're looking for the appearing of our great God and the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Or are we looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. What do you think? Why? Uh, I don't know. That's just how I thought. What difference does it make? What's the difference? Well, I understand what the difference is, but what difference does it make? What's the biggest difference that would make? They're the same, but calling Jesus. The Father. It's calling Jesus God. Okay. But it would make it seem like you don't have a Savior yet. If you read it the first way. If you're waiting for your God and Savior to appear, then it would make it seem like you're, you don't have one yet, because you're waiting for it to appear. But if well, you're calling this person this, then it can already be that. I'm not sure I got that. The question is, is the great God here Jesus, or is it the Father? And... It doesn't ultimately matter, except that there's not many places that call Jesus God. This might be one of them. I think it is better to take it as our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Um, For one thing, the appearing... I don't know that we're looking for the appearing of the Father. The appearing we're looking for is the appearing of Jesus. Uh, that, That Certainly that's the word normally used for Jesus coming back, not some appearance of, of the Father. Uh, the, the earliest commentaries among the Greeks 
understood it that way. That's the way they read that, which means something. That's the way they would have taken the phrase. Um, and there's some other more technical points, but I think that's the better way to take it. This is not the only passage that calls Jesus God, right? Where are other passages? Do you remember? Who's that? I don't know. We'll find out. Well, when they quote Old Testament passages that talk about Yahweh and apply it to Jesus. Okay, great point. Yes, there are several of those. Are there some that just directly call him God in the New Testament? The word was God. Yes, where's that? John 1. Yes. The word was with God and the word was God. That's using God for Jesus. Can you think of some others? There's not many. What did Thomas say? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. That's another one. There's a couple more that are the strongest ones. They are a little debated, but Romans 9, 5 and 2 Peter 1, 1. I think all of those do use God for Jesus. So I think that's probably what he's saying. We're looking for the hope and appearing of Jesus coming back. The Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. So he sacrificed himself to rescue us from all of our sins. That's our lawless deeds. And to purify him for himself a people for his own possession. So he gave himself for us to really consecrate and purify a people that he could have for himself. You know, God wants to have us for himself. And uh, zealous for good deeds. Uh, that's interesting. Not just do good deeds, but be zealous for good deeds. The Titus talks a lot about good deeds. For a small book, you got them several times. And he wants us to really be enthusiastic about doing good. So, that's, uh, that's what, what you know, God has done for us in Jesus. Now, what does he want Titus to do with these teachings? Teach it. How? By speaking and exhorting and reproving. How? With all authority. With all authority. What's that saying? Be bold. Yeah. Don't you teach this like, well, you know, maybe this is the way it is. If you want to believe it this way, it's kind of how I feel about it. No, he says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Don't you be, you know, kind of like, well, you know, I kind of feel this way about it. Teach it boldly. Teach it courageously. Teach it like this is the way it is. Because it is the way it is. And uh, if you teach it like, well, I don't know if this is really true, but I'll, I'll give you this idea. <laughs> well, that's not giving anybody conviction and confidence that the word is true. So he wants Titus to be bold. Thoughts and comments on chapter 2. All right, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. 